0: Spetsnaz has no distinguishing badge or insignia, officially at any rate. But unofficially, the Spetsnaz badge is a wolf, or rather, a pack of wolves. A wolf is a strong, proud animal, which is remarkable for its quite incredible powers of endurance. A wolf can run for hours through deep snow at great speed, and then, when he scents his prey, puts on another astonishing burst of speed. Sometimes he will chase his prey for days, reducing it to a state of exhaustion, exploiting their great capacity for endurance. Wolves first exhaust and then attack animals, noted for their tremendous strength. The wolf also has a powerful intellect. He is proud and independent. You can tame and domesticate a squirrel, a fox, or even a great elk, but you cannot tame a wolf. A wolf lives in a pack, a closely knit and well-organized fighting unit of frightful predators. The tactics of a wolf pack are the very embodiment of flexibility and daring. The wolves' tactics are an enormous collection of various tricks and combinations, a mixture of cunning and strength, confusing maneuvers and sudden attacks. No other animal in the world could better serve as a symbol of the Spetsnaz. Viktor Suvarov, Spetsnaz, the inside story of the Soviet Special Forces. Well, I'm not a crook. I've earned everything I've got.
1: Military-Industrial Complex. A new world order. But we are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people.
2: I did not trade arms for
1: hostages. Hello
0: and welcome to the myth of the 20th century. Today we are going to be talking about Spetsnauts. In Russian, uh, this means special purpose, and it is an abbreviation of Special Noya Natsakhnyenye, if I said that correctly. But it's the infamous, uh, or at least famous, special forces of the Soviet Union and later Russian Federation. Uh, I'm joined today by Hans and Hank. Please say hello. Hey Hey, everyone. And I did uh, did note that we had a Bitcoin donation from the wallet, 3ELF. I do not believe I, we received an email. If this person wanted a book, please um, email myth20c at com. I'd be happy to send you one. But otherwise, thank you very much. But um, guys, what, when you hear that word, what do you picture in your mind? Spetsnaz. 90s
2: TV shows where... A, uh, you know, some sort of a, a judge advocate general for some reason is gets into a, a bit of a tiff in Europe somewhere. And it's like they ominously refer to Spetsnaz. Uh, that's that's Russian special forces. It's sort of a uh, a, a trope that's used as a, a looming, uh, scary boogeyman.
3: What other special forces, uh, foreign special forces, has that kind of uh, recognizability in, in America? I guess I guess MI six or just the British SAS, maybe SAS. I don't really know. SAS is yeah. the yeah, special forces.
0: In terms of yeah. the ruthlessness, though, I I'd, I'd have to think. I mean, maybe uh, the Mossad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Yeah, maybe these maybe are all the sort North sort of different North things, because like MI6 is an like intelligence that. agency. Um, the uh, Mossad is, uh, I, I forget if they're under the military directorate or not, but I believe there's also
3: Israeli military intelligence, Some I might have, have that wrong. Mossad is, is effectively a, uh, a reconnaissance and, and assassination group that's always been sort of the operational capacity of well, Mossad. Mossad's motto is
0: war by deception. So they're not necessarily aggressive. They're very covert in nature. Um, and they're not special forces. They're basically the CIA. So, uh, I'm sure they have an equivalent, you know, of a special forces unit that I'm not thinking of specifically, but Mossad is pretty much their intelligence agency.
3: I think the, the popular conception of specials is basically, uh, uh, how, how most Americans view post-Soviet Russians as uh, somehow both uh, preeming to take over the world and completely backwards and, and laughable. Some kind of weird dichotomy that exists at the same time. Um there's a, there's always been like a weird strain of almost respect, but I I can't tell what's respect or again it, it's sort of laughing at lack of sophist- supposed lack of sophistication on the the Spetsnaz, uh training models. You know, they they allegedly beat up their um, their trainees and they put them through rigorous testing and all this stuff about well, throwing the, the United throwing States axes. Used, to, or used to do that,
0: but it's gotten but yeah. so much softer as of late. Well, they
3: put they put women in the rangers now, so you sure as hell can't like beat up your, your trainees or maybe have a drill sergeant get in their face and and call them a pussy. You can't do that anymore. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, when I think of spetsnaz, I think of a guy wearing a balaclava. It just, it just yeah. comes immediately to my mind. Now, that's not necessarily what spetsnaz really is. I mean, they're actually they're they're designed to be selected from the the mm-hmm. top one percent of all the sort of conscripts that I mean during the Soviet Union and I'm basing a lot of this information by the way from uh, Victor Suvorov's book uh, Specials in Inside the Story of Soviet Special Forces but uh, and that was written in the 80s and so some of this may be outdated but the basic idea is that they are recruited from you know the the standard conscripts where I think everybody had to do you know enter the their two years uh, like a lot of countries. And then after that, most people become civilians or most men would become civilians uh, or enter the general army. But only the top 1% of those recruits were invited to be part of this special unit. And then once they completed their training, they would then be given uh, a assignment if they're also uh, qualified after that point to go into various branches of the military. And they would typically be given jobs uh, to kind of be spies frankly for the military and also to be uh, ready to go uh, unbeknownst to the enemy, perhaps in places where they needed that extra ferocious thrust from an individual or group of individuals in places where the military could activate them. And so they would typically be classified as airborne. This is sort of the generic uh, branch that they would be part of, but they would be stationed all over the place and the better ones would actually be given the more dangerous assignments. And so, if you were actually somewhat worried about that, you actually should not perform as well because they would they would give you harder jobs and more dangerous jobs. And the the main job of uh, the Spetsnaz during during wartime uh, would be to basically destroy key enemy installations specifically nuclear weapons, and so they would be dropped in through parachute, or they would have to be uh, put in, you know, through uh, land vehicles, uh, whatever the easiest way to, to get in behind the enemy, enemy's uh, fortifications, and then they would under the cover of darkness, or uh, using a combination of various technologies, including dogs who are specially trained to sniff out certain uh, certain materials or chemicals, uh, with with bombs uh, installed in them. By the way, so sorry to all your pet lovers out there. They were a very vicious um, vicious group in the eighties, at least. But they would be tasked to basically put bombs uh, on key infrastructure like bridges, uh, nuclear power stations, which were of particular note to the. Soviet Union because they were somewhat competitive against the oil exports that they had. And so they had this kind of bias against uh, the French nuclear reactors and German uh, nuclear reactors and things like that. And obviously blowing them up would cause total havoc to the power grid in the enemy's enemy's ability to fight. And so they would be tasked with things that were, were very kind of tip of the spear, destroying critical installations. During peacetime, however, their main job would to would be to actually be part of, and this was kind of funny to me. A lot of them would end up in places like uh, the Olympics teams, and so the the sports for the Soviet Union. Uh, I don't know. I can't speak for Russian thinking on this, but for the Soviet Union, sports was was primarily a way or, or showpiece for the communist ideology and a way to differentiate themselves, even if if it was just by a microsecond, by their capitalist uh, enemy. And so if they could train somebody up in sports, they were happy to do that. And the real reason they liked Spetsnaz in this vocation was was because during the tournaments and during all the competitions, you could get these uh, Russian or Soviet individuals posing as athletes to infiltrate foreign nations and take take tours and like, quote unquote, vacations around uh, the country without any raising any real suspicion. And so they would be taking copious notes of all these things. And so Spetsnaz was uh, being used in that way during kind of peacetime situations.
2: Yeah, when we talk about like special forces or spies, like it's not really spying per se, there is a distinction that exists between espionage and reconnaissance. Or like armed reconnaissance sabotage versus uh, uh, the sort of out of uniform uh, you know, dirty tricks that you might find the KGB or the CIA or the Mossad doing. Um, because they were and still are, I suppose, um, an actual uniformed military uh, component. And that has a lot of different tasks under the umbrella of reconnaissance armed reconnaissance sabotage or uh you know sort of uh, small unit defined objective uh, tactics so for instance like when you're talking about oh we need to find where all of the uh, find where all the nukes are in this area um, one of the ways to do that is you know you hire uh you hire a cab driver or something you bribe a cabbie and he's driving all over town and he sees where like the comings and goings are and the guy who's responsible for handing off that payment that's not going to be your spetsnaz guy that's not going to be your uh that's not going to be your uh you know sas guy or your army ranger that's going to be you know some embassy staff or something that's collecting a check from their intelligence services um and it seems like every country really worth having a military has some group of these sorts of guys for this sort of thing when you need something sort of a specific accomplished um they all seem to kind of go about it in slightly different ways but there's been a lot of convergent uh, evolution there, it seems like in terms of the um, selection process and in terms of the kind of uh, mission portfolio of these guys.
3: Do you think it, there's an element of um, military and civilizational complexity that you need before you can really develop a, a worthwhile special forces that it's some you just hit some scale at some point where, The the rank and file of your military, the supply chains, logistics element of it, the technology element are are all working well enough that you can start to develop specifically tasked individuals and provide them with additional training and very specific missions. Probably. It's it's an element of scale. There
0: are small countries that do have these types of units, but I think it's no question the larger resource pool you have, the more effective you can have specialists. Because, you know, if you have a group of 100 people, the likelihood of 10 of those people being really good at uh, sniping or something like that is going to be a lot lower than if you had a million people. You're just going to have a, a larger number of, of candidates to recruit from, and in addition to the resources that you can put into uh, getting these these special units into location, uh, which is typically through airplanes and, and uh, amphibious landings and and very difficult kind of complex maneuvers that would require some substantial Navy or air force. And so I think that you would, um, you would have a lot of advantages the more, the larger your, your your military and your country is.
2: It's also a major stability risk because you're talking about people that are designed to get into places without being noticed and kill specific people or cause damage to infrastructure or whatever and when they uh when their careers are over they don't lose those skills by magic and in a sufficiently small enough country where your kind of aggregate military uh, capability is more dominated by that sort of skill set it becomes easy for that to constitute a, a power base in and of itself like, there's a reason why, uh, you know, you always put your brother in charge of the, uh, you know, the presidential guard or the Republican guard or whatever you're going to consider as your uh, your elite force or your um, particularly politically destabilizing forces. Yeah. In a larger country, you can kind of get away with having a larger component because, you know, you have a more secure power base, you have offsetting power. Um, power interest groups, you have frankly more resources to offer, um, the people, uh, the people who you're putting into those positions, both in a, uh, command capacity and the actual people. Um, I've heard it said anecdotally, um, I don't know if this is actually the truth, uh, but I've heard it said anecdotally that there's a very robust, um, Uh, job placement um, apparatus um, for people with uh, particular sets of skills that don't necessarily translate that well into civilian life.
0: Well, it's funny you mentioned choosing someone in your family or your relations to be put in key positions. One of the biggest themes I got from reading this Suvorov book was just the cynicism behind the mentality of the Spetsnaz, at least, if not the entire Russian military and society i mean for anybody who knows russians you probably would not be surprised to hear that there is at least a tinge of cynicism in the russian spirit uh it's a well, kind of and, a harsh this guy place in
2: particular that's that's like his thing like he wasn't he, he wasn't just some russian guy who wrote a book like he was a defector that defected yeah. because he was uh you know he claimed to be disgusted at the uh the dishonesty um that he saw in his society.
0: I mean we we could discuss even him. I mean he's a fascinating person. He's written several books that are very well cited and he has a lot of theories about the second world war as as relation to the strategy of Hitler and Stalin which may be for another show, but he he is an interesting person and you do have to kind of filter a little bit of that from any of the reading you do with him, especially as a defector. I mean you have to question what his motivations are. But, um, I'm going to read a quick passage from his book, um, about the sort of nature of the Spetsnaz soldier. So in the Spetsnaz soldier's opinion, the most dangerous thing he can do is put faith in his comrade who may at the most critical moment turn out to be a beast. It is much simpler for him not to trust his comrade or anybody else so that in a critical situation, there'll be no shattered illusions. Better that he regards all his fellow human beings as beasts from the outset than to make the discovery in an utterly hopeless situation. The soldier's credo can be stated in a triple formula. Don't trust, don't beg, don't fear.
2: Yeah, I mean, so maybe we should talk a little bit about Suvrov because he, I mean, let's talk a little bit about his uh, his career um, I mean, I know he uh, worked supposedly Soviet military intelligence, so he would have been um, kind of uh, familiar with some of this stuff. He he has a very interesting book, kind of about broader um, Soviet military organization and doctrine, called Inside the Soviet Army, which is available free legally online and is uh, is a really really good book if you're interested in kind of compare uh, comparative uh, military doctrine um but uh, particularly when he's talking about things like the um the way that one is uh selected or placed into units um especially in the context of the soviet draft um he really um he, he he's like uh, openly um uh disparaging of it not I, i'm trying to come up with the right word he's um uh he doesn't so much address the, uh, well i don't know like he he writes about it in a in a way where he's clearly condemning it um kind of implicitly in moral terms but not in uh its efficacy mm-hmm Um, without explicitly addressing either of those. That's the best way I can put it. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, in the context of the Soviet um, draft and of having a Soviet military career, um, one of the things that he talks about is that, like, you just don't know what's going on at any given time. Mm -hmm. And the system is kind of set up to uh, place you in some way for its own ends or for its own convenience. Yeah, the, like, a lot of that's by
0: design. I mean, there's the passage in about the Spetsnaz, uh, in his book that he talks about how at any moment, uh, candidates for officers can be replaced and they instill this like paranoia level of competition between the recruits and you're, you're judged on, on a multitude of things. I mean, your obedience, your, your intelligence, your ingenuity, uh, not doing anything that offends, you know, the political party or apparatus. And so everybody needs to know that they, they make one wrong move and they can be eliminated. And I think there's, there's a lot of that kind of compartmentalization that kind of allows much more of that, because if people were able to kind of coordinate more, it would be harder for the top to, to do things like this.
2: Well, not even that, but like literally not, even knowing what's there so in something like the the american military um depending on which branch you're in um and you know bear in mind for all of our listeners there that are veterans um, none of us are so if we talk out of our that or we get something wrong um, please bear with us Uh, but my understanding is there's fairly well developed um, ways. Like everybody knows, like what the pathway is to like go to Ranger School or to, you know, join the SEALs. Um, there are enlistment contracts. My understanding is that guarantee you the right to um, try out um, essentially for these things. In the Soviet context, like if you want to be like a pilot or something. It was completely unclear how you actually do that because you just kind of apply to a military academy, and that military academy will have certain programs. You don't know what those programs are, and you don't know what the selection process is for them. So it's just like you show up, you uh, you decide that you know after your uh, mandatory service is over, you want to continue a military career as an officer. You apply to this thing and it's like, well, looks like you're going to be driving a tank. A, a lot
0: a lot of that is kind of in accordance with the communist ideology, that it is not an individual's choice that matters. It is what the state and the, the community, you know, whatever you want to call it, the massive political... Gobbledygook. that communism is uh, well, decides is what's most effective and, and useful, and so it's not up to yeah, you. That's common, like Comrade. in all armies.
2: Like you don't get to like choose your job, obviously, mm-hmm. per se. But mm-hmm. just the um, the the selection process, as he describes it, like he clearly thinks that it's very dehumanizing. It probably was very dehumanizing at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, the extent to which it actually succeeded in pulling out people who were good at particular things and placing them in particular roles um you know he oddly enough uh the counterfactual doesn't exist um so he really can't um address it but my understanding is that that was kind of one of the aspects of the Russian military reforms that they've taken under Putin was to kind of make it a more um more professional um as opposed to just like we draft everyone and we sort everyone, um, but to rather um, be trying to actually um, recruit a uh, kind of a a permanent cadre of professional um, soldiers who are there because they want
3: to be there. Technocratic approaches in the economy of the Soviet Union and even in military doctrine were, were more based on we have a wide swath of people and we have several hundred years of Missing institutional development, capital training, capital support, capital development. That we just have to take them all, find the best place we think that they'll do well in, and hope it works. And to pull them out and try and reallocate them would be too costly and not cost effective. And we might as well just stick with our original decision. I don't know if a lot of it was ideological. I I've always felt that you know the, the the way that Bolshevism quickly transformed into just well, how the hell do we manage over a hundred million peasants? Has, uh, has always stuck in my mind is that they were dealing with a, a complete dearth in a lot of the development that other Europeans had taken and you know, Americans had taken the time to actually uh, take upon themselves as as a unique endeavor. Whereas, uh, you know, in, in the Russian Empire and early Soviet Union, it, it was not endeavored towards at all. And uh, a lot of the later reforms were done very hastily, you know, rushing into World War II, then rushing into a potential conflict with the Americans that seemed to go on for 40 years. Uh, I can see why, you know, we can look at it now as sort of silly or dehumanizing. But uh, they, they fully believed, I, I think not ideologically, but that that was the only way that they could realistically build some kind of military-industrial complex with a with a human capital component. You could, you just didn't have the the ability to offer people private military or, or professional military careers. You know you had to have some massive proportion of your country in the military at all times, just to preserve the basic social order. That was just sort of the reality of the, of the Soviet Union, the reality of the area that they were in. There's also, again, like the notion of the Red Army
2: as a political force. But right. Especially right. as things started breaking down more, or not necessarily breaking down, but not, uh, not advancing at a level um, uh, commensurate with people's expectations the armed forces began to consume proportionally more and more resources, especially as uh, weapon systems got more expensive. Uh, We memed them into uh, trying to match uh, the Reagan military buildup. Um, And one of the ways that you kind of secure military political power is by having a large military, but it also sort of makes them more uh controllable because when you have a very um, broad military establishment um you have like a very um, you have a lot of factions that you can play off you can choose like this particular group of generals um you know they're more politically in line with where a regime is now and everybody's getting fed everybody's getting paid everybody's getting a pension so it works out okay
3: yeah I also think that a great deal of the military reforms made uh, uh, under Zhukov before he was forced out after after the end of World War II, um, and, and under you know, the last days of Stalin and the early days of, uh, of Khrushchev as uh, premier, a lot of that was done with the intention of creating a professional military class. Zhukov had this bright idea in the late 40s, early 50s that he really tried to get off the ground, which was uh, in Tombov, uh, they'd basically create a, um, a, a specialized military academy. And the whole point was to have a professional military academy. Not that not the entire military would be a professional military, but this specific academy would be a professional military academy. And that was the entire goal of this, of, of this as entity, and they would create uh, something similar to what ended up becoming the Um uh, But Zhukov was forced out for political reasons, uh, and Khrushchev proved to be somewhat of um of a novice in terms of his military reform abilities, Khrushchev was much more of an operator. He was much more of a of a combat general than he was a strategic thinker.
0: Um, I mean, so he was removed because, I mean, at, at a certain point, he was viewed as a clown. I mean, I know, they they blamed he, yeah. him for the Cuban Missile Crisis, and that was basically the end of it. I mean, he
3: yes, was, but on the military reform level, he you know Khrushchev basically. Uh, looked at the situation at the end of World War II and said, uh, we have way too many people in this army. And you can understand why. you know the entire country was effectively mobilized into the military and they couldn't pay for it. So Khrushchev originally uh, you know especially with the looming threat of, of nuclear weapons kind of uh, being proliferated towards multiple countries around the world, um, shifted the military doctrine, Initially towards weapons development. Well, the one thing that the Russians have always really struggled with is decent weapons development. And there's only one area where they've typically done well, and that's in aeronautics. Um, but generally, their, their weapons development uh, was really staggered for a v- variety of reasons. Um, it, they depended highly on GRU to steal technology for them. And even then, that was somewhat unreliable. Uh, They also had to contend with the fact, I think we we mentioned this in our Skunk Works episode, that um, between Rancor, CIA, and and Skunk Works, uh, anything that the Russians did manage to come up with on their own was quickly found, retrieved, and brought back to America by the CIA for Rancor and and DIA and, and Skunk Works to analyze and to develop countermeasures for so they were in a very difficult spot, and when he de-emphasized the, the, the role of a large military, this especially did not fit well with how the country and how the military had been structured up to that point. So his reforms were to effectively slash huge chunks of the actual manned military of the Red Army and move more towards weapons development. Um, neither really worked. And this was part of the reason why uh, the Russians ended up being very much unable to back up their threats in the Cuban Missile Crisis. Their military was simply not cut out for it. Uh, they simply would, would have just lost. Uh, they were in sort of a strange transition period and they had not chosen one specific area to specialize in. Um, because they were still trying to do both, even though Khrushchev was pushing for reform to slash much of the formal military and move towards a weapons-based and and tech-based environment. Um, there were still elements in the military that did not go along with this plan, and you know, thus they were left with a very disorganized military structure that would have probably lost very badly to the, the United States in, in the early 60s. So a lot of the... Uh
2: you know employment of the spetsnaz it was intended to be in the context of this great big tom clancy world war three uh you know chess match uh turned into uh turned into backstreet brawl where you've got you know guys in uh the uh, kind of like crimean little green men dropping over uh Dropping all over Western Europe, mm-hmm. um, blowing stuff up, generally causing a ruckus, trying to find missile launchers, yeah. maybe being inserted out of submarines into the U.S. and trying to, you know, blow up the port of San Diego or whatever.
0: I mean, they they did he have was, them on submarines, but if you if you just read like, uh, Suvorov's book, it's basically revolving around like because there's this uh, this funny like passage where he's like, even an idiot could figure this out because they give uh, the interrogator units, there's like several types of spetsnaz. There's the intelligence officers, and there's kind of like the big military guys, and there's a few others. But the the intelligence ones, when they interrogate somebody, and they basically, they they torture people, um, they're given a translation book. And this book has, in Russian, uh the like 10 things that they're supposed to basically interrogate somebody on and then there's there's sort of like a big tree branch you know spread out of all the other languages that you know whoever whomever they're interrogating they just they point to that after they yell at him in russian this is what i just said and then the guy has to like pick you know choose your own adventure from like the book what his answer is but most <laughs> of the questions are all like missiles where yes no uh, you know, radar station. I mean, it's all like infrastructure, and give me location of key units. Like that's that's what they're doing there. That that's their job. It's basically yeah. blow up key stuff.
2: Well like, so none of that actually happened. Uh, there was no World War Three, um, so these guys never kind of got employed in their uh, their most grandiose um, version. But the uh, you know the USSR did end up fighting um, several. Uh, conflicts over its relatively short life, um, mostly by count, these uh, interventions in its own uh, own sphere of influence. In uh, Hungary, there were some putting downs of uh, rebellions in various other places. The Afghanistan inter- intervention, the um, the tiff with China um, at various
3: points. They were they were Czechoslovakia. Czechoslovakia deployed. Yeah, deployed several times in Czechoslovakia.
2: But uh, what do we know about um, Spetsna's uh, deployment in these circumstances? What was their sort of operational history?
3: In in Hungary, I mean, I can talk a little bit about, um, I think that their job, mostly in the Hungarian uprising, was to find, extract, and uh, in some cases, kill particular Hungarian dissidents within Budapest, most of the Hungarian uprising, you know, the, the real conflict came down to, to Budapest, the city. Uh, the Russians really did not go into Hungarian countryside. They feared, uh, from what I remember reading, they feared what would happen if they did some kind of full-on invasion of the Hungarian countryside. A, it would turn into uh, some kind of real pickle for them because the Americans could easily exploit it over the Austrian border and funnel guns into uh, various Hungarian farmers who weren't probably too happy to see um, Russian soldiers walking around. Um, so the Spetsnots were, were almost entirely used in Budapest to find, extract, and kill key, key dissidents, key leaders of the Hungarian uprising, and I think also extract Soviet citizens, and so- in particular, Soviet assets. Who were in danger because the city basically turned on the soviets very quickly uh the russian embassy was you know was lit on fire there was you know the people were being executed in the street for being tied to the soviet union or being tied to the communist party so i think the specials were deployed as a you know basically rapid reaction force to grab and kill certain people and then grab and just exfil certain uh, certain friendlies I'm curious same, in, about, same in Czechoslovakia, like they served the same purpose in, in both of them, was to find and kill particular dissidents, and then find and next fill uh, certain Soviet friendlies.
2: I guess um, Suvorov defected in like the mid '80s, right? So he would not have had any uh, any experience with Afghanistan. Yeah, he he defected in '78.
3: Um, yeah, he missed the whole Afghan conflict. I mean, and the Spetsnaz did get involved in um, other regions. They got involved in Africa. Uh, there were there were rumors, although not totally confirmed, they were involved in uh, the Bush War against Rhodesia. Um, if they weren't if they weren't there, they were certainly helping to train uh, soldiers in Mozambique. They were certainly had a presence in Angola. They had a documented presence in parts of East Africa, um, obviously had a documented presence in Mongolia. Uh, I think you know they kind of they kind of served as both reminders of the the Soviet influence over the country and as military advisors to very fledgling militaries. So you can imagine the Mongolian military in nineteen seventy five. It's basically uh, a joke you know in Mongolia has this tenuous relationship with the Soviet Union and, and it's it's chosen to go with the Soviets after the sino-soviet split and so there's a there's a huge swath of special and and, uh, and military advisory units in Mongolia that are basically there to command Mongolian troops uh, and you know Perform, I'm sure, all kinds of stay behind operations if the Chinese were to invade. Same in Angola, and you know, same and probably if they had units in India, I'm sure that they were there specifically to do something in the case of an Indian-Pakistan war.
0: Well, you mentioned training. There was uh, in this book mention of a lot of the training that the USSR would do for, and, and Suvarov just says like the word terrorists. Uh, I, I'm sure there was better political terms that the Soviet Union used at the time, uh, freedom fighters, dissidents, something like that. But it was, Moscow was sort of seen as a magnet for a lot of these people uh, to go get training and additionally financing and and weapons as well in their endeavors to blow up the West. And they had a lot of training camps within the USSR and the Eastern Bloc and in places like Cuba. So spetsnaz would be dispatched to, you know, offer expertise and explosives and things like that. And one of the things about Spetsnaz uh, was that, again, they're ostensibly part of the airborne corps, but there actually were a lot of these guys that were intended to be dropped in by parachute because it's it's how you insert your, your sort of targeted teams uh, in in an area that is somewhat heavily defended. And they would have um, they would kind of have these standard kits of ammunition, four hundred rounds for their uh, semi-automatics. They'd have a pistol. Uh, one that wouldn't get tangled in the sort of parachutes. They went through all these sort of uh, thought processes as to the type of scenarios they would be in. And the explosives they would have were oftentimes mines. And these mines could be used for not only defending their perimeter or setting up kind of a a no-go zone for... Uh, the enemy civilians maybe to, to discover that even the Sputzenauts were there because they would have all these parachutes kind of stuffed into, into corners of a forest or something. And so they would have to actually mine that area so that nobody could actually get in there and, and report it uh, or be alive to be reported. And so these mines are actually very incredibly powerful and they would be directed uh, directionally uh, targeted, so if you stepped in front of one, uh, it would blow at you and not in the surrounding area, and so most of the, the force would be concentrated, and so as to not waste all the explosive power, uh, presumably, and you could use this not only against um, people in the anti-personnel sense, but it also you could place these mines on the infrastructure that I've been talking about this whole show, and so you could put it on a a generator or a an I-beam that holds up a bridge. And the, the the blast would be would be focused uh, in such a way that it, it would cut through whatever you're targeting. So very powerful stuff. And so they were very good at explosives, and they actually knew how to manufacture explosives as well from kind of not necessarily household items, but somewhat easily, more easily obtained items. So very MacGyver-ish. And these types of things would be there for them to, to train people with. So they would they would teach people this stuff. Um, Last thing, because well, uh, oh,
3: yeah. Well, can you say that they're? I guess they kind of fit the classic definition of a shock trooper, right? And kind of like, well, you know, I Hank think a shock describing. trooper when That's, people
0: use that term, it's more of like a storm stormtrooper or something from the Second World War. That's more of a combined arms soldier. I think uh, special forces is they're by themselves. I think that might. Be yeah, a good thing. that
2: one of the really pernicious uh, aspects of modern American military doctrine is that uh, the uh, because of the deployment cadence, um, a lot of the um, more specialized troops or special forces cadres are used as shock troops. Like, shock troops are the guys who die first um, because they're the ones that get thrown into the meat grinder in order to shock the enemy. Yeah, so, I, I mean, that's it. your... Those are like um, the Marines. You're like... Yeah, you know, your your cavalry charges, or your um, you know, your Soviet penal battalions, your uh, <laughs> you know armed SS units, your uh, your foreign SS units. I, I
0: just got to say, after sort of taking all this in, I mean, there's two ways at least you can interpret the mentality of the Spetsnaz and the Soviet Union army in, in general. One is to admire it and to basically say war is hell. And to not discipline your soldiers like this and to treat them like garbage is to actually be a disservice because they're not being, going to be able to fight. On the other hand, the stuff they do to these guys, I mean, it's it's brutal. And it's kind of cruel, uh, if nothing else. And then they, they instill in these guys' minds like this ferocity that it spills over into their personal lives and in the sort of civilian uh, location as well. I mean, they're basically they're describing scenarios where... They they push the guys so hard to the point where he might even commit suicide, but but you know not quite that far. And then the job of the commander is basically to turn that fury against the enemies of communism. Uh, and it's just this horribly. Um, I, I mean, it's 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 like okay, if you're fighting a war and you ha- it's a survival war, I get it, but it's a peacetime army, and for forty years you're you're ruining these guys' psyche to the point where they're they're having PTSD and they're. Are these, uh, I mean, I don't know, I, that, that's the sort of second way of looking at it, where it's its actually a very corrosive way to instill uh, an esprit de corps I mean, the American thing is like, leave no man behind, I mean, I don't think that applies in this scenario, I mean, basically it's like leave <laughs> the guy behind because he's stupid, you know it's like, they, they're very um, well, uh, yeah,
3: I do about, about their, I don't know their about fellow that. soldier I, I mean, that's the impression I get so, here's something, I, I do want to say uh, maybe Shock Trooper wasn't right so the, the term that I've seen used multiple times to describe them was either vanguard or tip of the spear, and typically within the American context, that refers to Army Rangers.
0: Yeah, green but berets.
3: Green berets or Army Baby Rangers. Seals. Right, right. But uh, if you look at you know what someone like Tor uh, Buchval has described as the main task of the Spetsnaz, it's you know special reconnaissance. Uh, combating or countering enemy special forces. That was a specific job that they were often trained to do. Uh, Rage and sabotage, psychological operations, military assistance, uh, supporting non-SOF forces, search and rescue, peace support operations. So on paper, they weren't really designed to be tip of the spear operators, but they ended up being, I think, used especially into the 80s in Afghanistan and some of the, the neighboring territories. Uh, and, and definitely in the 90s in, in Chechnya and Dagestan, as uh, as basically as army rangers. Yeah,
2: and that's one of the things. Like when you have these capabilities, they find uh, their existence as the justification for their usage. There, there was a really uh, uh, infuriating part of the 20s. Um, uh, which year is the? 20 uh yeah 2016 um democratic uh presidential primaries where somebody was talking about how uh, they didn't want to send any troops to syria only special forces uh (laughs) just like jesus christ like you're you're sending like americans to die like in a war that you're choosing but you know I guess they don't like carry a flag, like they don't have like a freaking regimental like mascot bulldog or whatever. So they well, we don't. We know that's, count.
3: that's functionally, functionally. Like, I, I don't
2: know what the what the thought process is there. It's, it strikes me as incredibly asinine. So, but it's like, well, once you have this like quote unquote deniable capability, the political temptation is like, well, like we got all these these spooky guys. Let's just send them to whack this particular guy or whatever.
3: So I think that there, there's obvi- obviously they're they're bullshitting, they're lying. Um, but I can see why they think that there's some internal logic that would that would work. Basically you know the the Bush years and the Obama years with JSOC, with a lot of Delta forces inside of Iraq, I think inundated the average American's mind into believing that uh you know, it, it was super easy for us just to send you know, in the middle of the night uh, a team of, of guys that will whack you uh, who will then get out in half an hour and blow up your compound or and take all your laptops and, and then, you know, whatever. Right. Um, I think that there, there was an efflorescence of those operations in that time frame. So people really started to believe that this could just function as a war. Uh, there was a guy who used to blog more often, uh, War Nerd, I'm sorry, Wartard, the Wartard. He um, he basically characterized the Obama military doctrine as a mixture of tech nerd, CIA, and JSOC. And basically, uh, JSOC, and you know, that was sort of a catch-all term for JSOC itself and just all the, the various kind of whack job, um, special forces types, who whose job was framed as just being there in the middle of the night in a black helicopter to kill people like Osama bin Laden and bail. Um, but, you know functionally we know it doesn't really work like that in, in the case of Syria a lot of these guys have uh, have a support several thousand person support structure they're either part uh, you know they're either based off of a carrier group inside of the Mediterranean or they're part of a US military base in Turkey, or they're part of a US military base in Jordan, both of which carry several thousand support apparatus. Um, to say that this is, we're just going to use special forces, what does that mean? Does that mean that we have a permanent presence inside Jordan? That's kind of effectively what it's meant. Um, but in the case of Syria, we've had about 3,000 personnel in Syria right now. Are all 3,000 of those people uh, operators? No. Uh, some small fraction have of them have advisors, Hans. Right. Well, they're just, they're just giving small, friendly advice. Some small fraction of them are, are actual operators, but the rest of them are support crew. In order to sustain long-term special forces operations, it's not like what the Spetsnats were designed to do, or, or like what the what Army Rangers are actually more in the case, Green Berets and and SEAL Team Six are designed to do, which is go in, you know, fuck you up, and then and bail. If you want long-term, sustained special forces operations, you know, alongside local allies on the ground, along with your own operational uh, procedures, that requires several thousands of people to support continued operations. You need a you need a full time three star general to be on base just to coordinate all this shit.
2: Which means you need somebody trucking in food. Which means you need right. somebody protecting that convoy. Right. And right. So, so on. You, down you, see,
3: you see the explosion in scale that's required to maintain that. So it was obvious horseshit. Um, but it does. It does. I think it, it's worth talking about because it does get to the nature of what modern special forces really has become. Modern special forces is the replacement for the military in the sense that everyone else is just there to support um, highly specialized units of very peculiar people that are used for very specific tasks yeah, uh, who were also utilized along with um, the local allies on the ground. In the case in Syria, it was Kurds, and unofficially, it was also uh, elements of Al Qaeda that were our uh, our allies on the ground.
2: Yeah, and I know I've read several sources that indicate that the operational tempo with which we're deploying these guys has vastly increased, um, even since you know the height of, uh, I guess, no longer the height, but. You know, when we were actively uh, fighting the Iraq war um, or uh, when we were uh, prowling around Afghanistan for uh, Osama bin Laden.
3: I mean, in the the height of the Iraq war, we had hundreds of JSOC guys, which was unparalleled, all operational at the same time. There were probably in total thousands, thousands of, of operators from different branches working in Iraq. Probably in like there's the same three or four cities in Iraq uh, during the height of the Iraq War. I mean, it, it was it was insane. Like Adam was saying, the Marines were basically shock troopers. The Marines were basically there to you know hold law and order, getting some shootouts. But for the most part, it was just operators going around and whacking people that didn't get the hell out of the city in time. That was like though that was the entire Iraq War for the most part was. Special forces, you're actually going in and completing missions, and then the Marines would be left to get in these really weird shootouts and die driving long roads and stuff like that.
2: Yeah, it's like the uh, the regular army are the guys that get shot at, and right. then the uh, your quote unquote special forces are uh, the ones that uh, theoretically you get to uh, have shoot without consequences.
3: Well, maybe maybe we should talk about something too, which is uh, the special were are trained to counter special forces. I mean, wh- what exactly does that even mean in the modern context? You know, the special are still around. Are they? They're trained to counter what? Uh, Green Berets, Navy SEALs, like in the in the modern era. I don't even know how you would counter another country's well, special forces. I would
2: guess. Um,
3: I mean, I'm not super familiar
2: with. Uh, you know, kind of what the doctrine is on that level. But I would guess things like, um, things like counter sniper, um, duty would be the first thing that comes to mind, like security for, uh, particular installations. Um, you know, things like, uh, traveling security details, um, for, uh, you know, your local notables or, um, deploying for, uh, security. I mean, I know that's one of the things that, uh, the U.S. Um, does routinely. There's all sorts of fun um, pictures of uh, nice, uh, nicely dressed guys in a very concealing uh, clothing with American haircuts, uh, accompanying uh, Hamid Karzai um, back when he was still around. Um,
3: that was but, the pres- uh, that's the president of Afghanistan, or the former president. Was yeah. And for those, know who, for those uh, of who we're going to borrow the the term from. <laughs> Fascination For those of you in Rio Rhinelander, that was the former president of <laughs> Afghanistan. The guy with the funny hat. He looked like he was uh, a a, uh, I don't know, like a, a barman from the 1950s America.
0: Yeah, he <laughs> like kind of looks like Indiana triangular Jones character.
3: Hat. Yeah, he does look
0: like an Indiana Jones character. And he would often be found with uh, prostitutes and uh, briefcases full of American dollars. Uh, so I'm told.
2: And have one without the other. <laughs> the, I mean, you can you can guess like in context of okay, so we're gonna have this big climactic uh, NATO Warsaw Pact uh, hoedown. I mean, if you just kind of picture everything in reverse, so there's gonna be American helicopters flying around, dropping guys that are gonna be trying to blow up uh, Soviet nukes. So you try to put your guys around there so that they can detect um, where these things are being inserted and so that they can communicate um, so that they can do kind of a counter ambush um, before the uh, the ambush of wherever your uh, mobile missile launchers are having you know there it's a uh, I don't know how that works out kind of um, like tactically with a fixed installation. If you would have like particular points of control, or if you're doing like patrols and reconnaissance, um, I'm not sure how that shapes out, but I mean, just basically watching out for helicopters, I would guess would be one of the main things like watching out for, um, infiltration across that border, um, things of that nature. Because it's basically like a like a duel of scouts? Then at that point, like everybody's kind of running around the jungle, very Vietnam like, trying to right. uh, trying to catch the other guy as he's trying to catch you well, with one of would, your respective
3: pants down. There would have been an added layer of complexity in the idea of stay behind forces, and you know the Soviets and, and NATO were both, util- or I guess, yeah, the Soviets and NATO were both utilizing stay behind forces. That was that was Operation Gladio was basically was recruiting a lot of former commandos Otto Skorzeny being one of the most prominent ones to act as, uh, you know, uh, operators somewhat disassociated with the official NATO hierarchy in the case of a Soviet invasion of Germany or France or Austria.
2: And the implication of that is that, like, you would expect there to be some sort of quasi-Einsatzgruppen role Where, like, as you're rolling through, you're trying to, um, do things like, uh, take out whatever local political leadership, um, you can get your hands on, um, you know, take out either in the sense of hostage taking or just murder, um, things like, uh, you know, this is one of the things that, um, the US, um, special forces do a lot is document collection, um, you know, you roll through, uh, like I don't know, whatever German city is on the border, uh, whatever the closest military base would have been. You need somebody to rifle through whatever they haven't burned and figure out if you can get any uh, plans that might be useful on short notice, or any technical documents for things like how the radars are done or logistics um, about where their um, where their supplies are coming through or coming from. Um, so all these things. You know, it's it's kind of um, I don't want to say standard, um, but it's it seems to be like a role that a lot of uh, countries have uh, landed upon um, for at least one component of that. And you also have like tactical employment. They talk, Surov talks about how um, Soviet uh, army divisions, they had like integral units of these guys. So in the American context, yeah, you have JSOC and you have like a, you know, an entire command um, that's devoted to doing particular things that have um, some sort of like a overall um, strategic um, impetus, like you know, go over there and find Osama bin Laden. But you also have um, you also have units that are integral to um, some. Uh, actual uh, maneuver element so like um marine uh marine recon marine uh, scout snipers those guys aren't um, you know taking orders from washington or whatever um, they're attached to whatever um, i forget which uh which level of uh organization if it's a brigade or whatever um but they're attached to that unit and their job is to like be like hey look like we were over in this area and we think like there's a bunch of soldiers over there so maybe we should kill those guys um but that's uh you know when, when people think about special forces often that kind of you know that notion of like armed reconnaissance or reconnaissance and force um that's one of the things that kind of straddles the line um and you saw that you saw that kind of uh mixing of roles even back as far as the US Civil War when you had like Nathan Bedford Forrest it's like, yeah, I have a cavalry command, I can go and I can fight as cavalry, I can do cavalry raids, or I can go behind lines and try to ripple rip out railroad ties and just generally cause a ruckus
0: Yeah according to Suvorov prior to the Second World War, and this was around the time of the Molotov Ribbentrop Pact, just to kind of frame Frame in your mind when this was occurring, the original plans for the Spetsnaz was to be located in the periphery, or not the periphery, but the border regions of the Soviet Union with Germany in particular. And their job was to, in the event of an invasion from Germany, to basically blow up every single piece of Soviet infrastructure to do the scorched earth uh, practice. And And this, keep in mind, this is when there was no satellites that the transportation technology was limited to the range of the fuel tanks of your propeller aircraft, which was probably like 200 miles or something. So you you could actually effectively create kind of a no-go zone uh, or a very difficult crossing zone, which effectively what the Soviet Union turned into for the Germans. Uh, you could do this back then by destroying the railroads, destroying the telegraph wires, destroying uh, any way to get clean water. Uh, And just stretch the supply lines of the enemy, and so that was the original plan. Uh, But what Stalin did was he actually moved the Spetsnaz out of that region, and this is one of the regions uh, reasons why Suvorov believes that Stalin was intending to attack as opposed to defend. And he had moved uh, a lot of these guys into the air corps to be deployed as sort of paratroopers as opposed to these uh, guys hanging out basically in the village in disguise, ready to destroy uh, anything that was useful to the Germans or act as partisans. So in withdrawing that, uh, this is one of the points that Suvorov adds to his thesis that... Stalin was intending to attack Hitler and Hitler basically had no choice in what he did with Barbarossa. That's the thesis of kind of what Suvorov gets into and some of his other works. But, uh, yeah,
2: he's a pretty big outlier there as far as, uh, most, um, most, uh, I don't want to say credible or mainstream, but most, uh, kind of more competent, I guess, uh, historians. Yeah. Seem to disagree with him in pretty, pretty, uh, uh crystal clear terms
0: yeah i've I've heard differing accounts as well but i, I have to say I was impressed by suvorov's writing i mean it's it's very thorough uh, and there's a lot of uh, very visceral anecdotes that make it seem it, it comes to life in in his writing and there's lots of relevant details that he puts into his work and so i would I would not call him uh an incredible source he he's somewhat credible in the level of knowledge he has but there's probably some bias in there. And so I would be, again, going back to the reason he defected and, you know, what are his motivations? I would be curious about, you know, why he, he thinks what he does.
2: And I'd be curious to see, like, I mean, I think some of this is a little bit played up for effect. Like this book is, um, kind of half anecdotes and, it paints an incredibly bleak picture of things like, um, you know, the various uh, soldiers beating the shit out of each other on a routine basis um, to the level in his storytelling that you would think would severely compromise their combat effectiveness. Um, I mean, it, it's one thing if you have your kind of... Uh, your drafted uh soldiers that they're mostly just there to hang out and uh, make the uh the general's portfolio larger if you have your year two draftees picking on your year one draftees because you've got twice as many draftees as you need but for the the level of like internal conflict that he describes within these units um I mean, I guess I don't have a concrete reason to disbelieve him um, other than the fact that that seems like if, you know, a third of your soldiers are like having gaping head wounds from the other two thirds at any given time, like, why, why do you have this elite cadre and you're letting themselves beat themselves to pieces? Like, my understanding is in the U.S. armed forces. You're you're like legally enjoined from doing things like mountain biking because they had too many guys uh, breaking their legs on uh, on leave and being laid up for a couple months.
0: Oh, like John Kerry? Yeah, I don't know if you remember that yeah. Trump was making fun of him during his campaign.
2: Yeah, um, but I mean that's that's the level to which the U.S. considers kind of peacetime uh, force preservation a uh, imperative. Um, well,
3: it's an economic decision. I mean. It, each operator, regardless of the branch, is probably worth well over a million dollars in total capital investment. The amount of time you spend training and arming and actually deploying these guys, you know, it's not long before they're each worth more than a million dollars. So See, there's no way you're going to let them. Well, bang up, maybe bang in the United their Maybe the United I States. States. I mean, it doesn't yeah, take yeah, yeah. that
2: it's much once yeah. once you realize that it's
3: like it's
2: human. Uh, it's like human costs all the way down. It's like you, this is the old trick of like you get uh, any random six people at your tech company into a, a room for an hour and you like, oh, this meeting's cost us 40 grand or whatever. Um, once oh, you add up like the all in expenses and blah, blah, blah. Like if you, if you consider, yeah, like the cost of training and the cost of lifetime healthcare and whatever, I mean, I guess that's all much cheaper in the 1970s USSR or whatever. But on the other hand, like the, the fundamental limit is there's really only so many uh, people of a level of competency that you have to draw from, even if you're really good at extracting them. Like, are there any numbers? I don't think I saw any numbers at any point in this about the kind of aggregate size of what they would consider the various um, divisions of Spetsnaz, which, you know, does cover the gamut, everything from, like, armed reconnaissance to, like, you know, the
0: the sports teams well, to whatever. It, it, but... Okay, so the only numbers that I saw in the book were in relation to the World War II numbers and the deployment of the Spetsnaz to Manchuria in the invasion of Japan. And those are somewhat credible. You can believe that because he was still in the Soviet Union and that was probably kind of... Maybe declassified, you know why not? But I, he couldn't credibly really estimate these sorts of things sitting in the United States, probably. But the numbers that were from the World War II era were in the millions, and so there were there were a lot of these guys, and and also the one percent number you could probably extrapolate from the total size of the of the Soviet Union during peacetime. Maybe you know that's that's a smaller number than the millions during the war, but. Uh, somewhere in between there is probably the size of the Spetsnaz forces, but again, it was it was meant to be secret. It, it was, it was like something that you were not even supposed to tell your family about, and it was by design to keep these guys as sort of secret, secret de- uh, deployable assets that could be activated when they're most critical. And part of their their strength is their they're the skies the the fact that they're they're concealed the fact that they're not known to be there because the element of surprise is always a, a, a big force multiplier whenever you're you're fighting somebody
3: and that is an element that's much more similar to to gladio than it is to traditional special forces i think now this but the, the spetsnaz is very much a, a Asymmetric, but also traditional special forces in the, in the sense of the United States with you know, Green Berets and, and Army Rangers and uh, I guess even JSOC. Uh, in the Cold War, especially before Afghanistan, I think the whole idea of the this, Spesnats this was – to operate you know, internally within and outside of country, to you know, easily shift in and out, to maintain cover. So they were partially reconnaissance and intelligence assets, but they worked formally for uh, the Soviet Red Army. It's kind of a weird hybrid role that they that they inhabited, I think, before Afghanistan. And it's towards the end of the, the Brezhnev era. Uh, Brezhnev and then the guy who would replace Brezhnev uh, and drop off, uh, were both very crucial. Yeah, and, who
0: was Putin's mentor, by the way, and only right. lasted for you, a few months, you, I think.
3: But uh, He he only served for 12 months. He served for basically a year as premier. Um, and then he died, and then it was uh, Chernenko? Chernenko. That sounds right. And then it was uh, Gorbachev. Uh, Gorb- that. Yeah, Gorbachev. Um, but uh, Andropov oversaw much of the kind of realignment of... This Bets not under Gorbachev I'm sorry under uh, Brezhnev. Brezhnev basically looked at the Khrushchev doctrine and said this is a complete disaster and I have uh, I have really only one real option and that is to strengthen our position in our immediate border territories along with you know very pro-communist parts of the planet and that meant some parts of southern Africa that meant some parts of Latin America. That meant uh, some support and in, in obviously in Southeast Asia with, with Vietnam and Cambodia, but um, to a large extent uh, it, it was mostly focused on Europe, focused on Central Asia, focused on you know maintaining a certain kind of uh, uh, defense posture towards Iran. Iran was uh, very much not friendly before the Iranian revolution and very much not friendly afterwards. So the Soviets were constantly sort of, I think, deploying assets in and out of Iran, deploying assets down to Central Asia to, you know, in the eventuality of some kind of conflict with, um, with the IRGC, they would be able to activate these guys. But and Andropov really turned them into what we think of them uh, in, a, in a more, in like a 90s era sense, you know, what Hank was talking about, as more of a... I think um, uh, it's described as a politico-military special forces operation. And and their whole idea there is that they started to split duties between the KGB and uh, the official GRU, which was the military intelligence unit. The KGB uh, was effectively the CIA. It, It answered directly to the Soviet premier. It answered directly to the Politburo. It was a very much a political operation. It was a political foreign, intelli- foreign and domestic intelligence operation, uh, sort of a combined MI5 and MI6. Uh, but they started utilizing the spe- some Spetsnaz assets along with the military. And that was then an, an idea cooked up by and drop off, um, along with a lot of stealth capabilities. This idea that they could sneak in and out of country in the middle of the night, that you could give them. Um, Certain night vision technology you could give them all kinds of helicopters that were quieter. You could find ways to parachute the men that didn't cause any disturbance. Train them specifically, and you know certain kinds of mountain warfare, uh, certain kinds of scouting. That was that was more the in drop off uh, strategy, and it just coincided with the rise of the Afghan conflict. The Soviets weren't really predicting this sort of having to use all these things in Afghanistan. Um, the Soviets really didn't even understand, from what I've read, how bad it was in Afghanistan until it was too late. They kind of took their eye off the ball because they assumed it was a very friendly regime, The communists in Afghanistan had very much cemented power, um, but were quickly, quickly thrown out and were quickly embroiled in the civil war. So they had to deploy hundred and Probably thousands of these guys all across um, Kabul, all across cities in the north of Afghanistan, all across various towns uh, as a very much a vanguard force. And then they quickly failed uh, in their initial attempts, mostly due to a lot of their support structure <laughs> literally being shot out of the sky.
0: Yeah, by Rambo.
3: Yeah, resupply planes. um Soviet helicopters were completely shot down. I mean, everything that r- really kept this sustained special forces operation going uh, was eliminated by, you know, American arms under the use of various northern tribesmen. Well, in it was the
0: Stinger, Stinger missile. Uh, that yeah. was uh, Brzezinski's stratagem to give these guys these freedom fighters there's funny footage of him like standing in front of these guys who would later be shooting at americans but he was like uh, we we support your cause your fight for freedom
3: you would yeah. go fight the godless communists <laughs> yeah i've seen the footage where he's, he's surrounded by these guys and these elaborate headdresses and beards that go halfway yeah, down their chest there's it,
0: equally goofy looking
3: uh and he's, he's there he's there in like a button-up shirt and a leather jacket it's just <laughs> something like that yeah. and, and he's got aviator sunglasses on it's like well this guy totally isn't fucking cia he, <laughs> he just he really yeah he, this
0: guy he, isn't just using you
3: right right yeah but you know the the I don't know if you want to talk about the the spetsnaz in Afghanistan. I don't know how much Suvarov, I you know to be honest, he doesn't I really, really I talk, talk about Suvarav it. He, yeah, he, he
0: just mentions Afghanistan as like the current conflict, which is what you know he, when he was writing this, but he didn't have any details.
3: There's a lot of anecdotal stories of you know, all kinds of insane operations that the the spetsnaz would get into in Afghanistan, but you know, honestly, at some point it was it it's pointless because they, they just totally failed uh there's the old adage that join you know, the club <laughs> yeah yeah i mean we've joined that club officially but uh you know there's an old adage that basically the the, the russian military when they entered afghanistan there was this they re, there was this horrible realization on their part that uh, uh the, the enemy on the other end of the gun saw heaven and it was impossible To win the trust of the locals and it was impossible to demoralize a lot of these tribes based out of northern Afghanistan and we kind of, you know, flowed back and forth into northern Pakistan, what's typically called Waziristan. Uh, It was impossible for them to find any sort of psychological warfare element against them. In fact, everything that they tried seemed to make it worse. All the domestic propaganda produced by kind of the government in exile, the communist government in exile of Afghanistan uh, just inflamed the situation more and more to the point where the Soviets basically had to tell these guys to shut up. just, just stop just stop talking. Is, you look ridiculous um, and you're just you're you're infuriating this very rural, very backwards population, even more, by constantly you know, promising them modernization is the one thing that they're fighting against. Uh, but I think in, there were, there's a couple weird anecdotes I know of where uh, in one case, uh, Spetsnaz were deployed in northern Afghanistan and uh, a whole, I don't know, you call them a platoon, you can't really call them a platoon, but a unit of Spetsnaz soldiers was basically uh, captured and killed and gutted and, uh, in response, there was some kind of massive Soviet, uh, incursion into the area. And, uh, I think the Russians even made a movie about it uh, five or six years ago and, um, it went horribly sideways and a large number of Russian troops were then ambushed and killed or wounded and had to be basically evacuated with a large armored column. Um, that was the only way to kind of get them out of this t- totally bungled operation, uh, And it has parallels to Operation Red Wings, which was when basically American Special Forces. It was a, they were what, SEALs. That was the the Marcus Latrell story. Um, They basically they get caught. Uh, Bad things happen. Talk about SEAL Team Six. Yeah, yeah. Which which I I am
0: not very clear on actually ever existed, but. Yeah, Uh, it
3: was. I don't know. I I think it was SEAL Team Six. It's. I mean, it's kind of interchangeable in Afghanistan. Um, But anyways, they uh, they get caught. You know, some die, and then uh, the real tragedy happens when a uh, a Chinook full of American Special Forces is dispatched to the area to try and rescue these guys, and they get shot down, and twenty more, twenty guys die pretty much instantly. Hmm, Makes you wonder. Yeah, that was that was the the weird incident where several of the men who were involved with the uh, Osama bin Laden uh, killing were just for whatever reason on that chinar.
0: I mean, give me a break, dude! Like they didn't—they they disposed of the body at sea. <laughs> you really believe this crap? I mean,
3: <laughs> it's what he would have wanted, dude. Yeah, yeah. He told the CIA. Well, that's all that matters. That he died. Um. No, so I, I there. There's one other story, and basically, uh, the the Spetsnaz when they initially went into Kabul, they were trying to deal with this insurgent element in Kabul, and Kabul was the center of the communist regime. And this was early on in the conflict, and they were they were deployed as this sort of vanguard force that the Brezhnev envisioned them as. Uh, okay, so go down to uh, Afghanistan. This is a neighboring territory. This is a very similar to the Soviet Union, uh, it's kind of a cousin state to the Soviet Union, um, you know, go deal with this problem, basically. And they, they pulled a lot of the same stunts that they did, uh, in the Hungarian uprising, which is where they would find and capture and kill certain people that they felt, uh, were making too much noise, um. Uh, their biggest mistake was not assuming that that wouldn't be picked up by the Americans. And, um, a lot of the Spetsnaz killings were exposed and sort of America, you know, propaganda that the Americans helped craft with the, the various jihadi elements who basically d- d- frame these people as martyrs, innocent martyrs killed for protesting a, uh, an atheist government that had taken hold in Kabul, um, from, you know, Instantly lack, I think, I don't know if it was lack of operational security or, or just not realizing that the, there were American elements in country at the time who were looking to make this uh, a major problem for the Soviets. Um, completely dropped the ball in terms of the, you know, kind of long term planning and, and unleashed a tidal wave of. Um, I don't know if you want you want to call them war immigrants. Basically, people that showed up to fight. Uh, this was used as international propaganda for the you know end of this fledgling, jihadi cause, and you had thousands of people, some of which were Soviet citizens, pouring into uh, you know northern Afghanistan, uh, ready to fight and um, and die against the communist oppressors as they were being framed. And the use of torture and kind of various. Interrogation and you know uh, local um, population put down measures really didn't do well either. These were, I think, these were these were ideas that were invented to put Europeans down to put down Germans who were pretty conformist, but uh, it really it really did not work in uh, the backcountry of Central Asia. It just inflamed people even more.
2: Yeah, you can only really demoralize. Because that's what it was about, like terror tactics designed to demoralize the population. But that only works if it's sort of uh, out of the ordinary. (laughs) When when your national sport is like decapitating a goat and like kicking it around for uh, a few hours and then uh, going back to sodomize uh, some nine-year-olds, it's like, well, you know, like, I guess they flayed like you know Uncle Mohammed. Well, you're never liked him anyway.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I don't really know. Maybe that that actually be a really interesting research topic to really understand more what was going on in the general Afghan mind during that whole process, but. The country is always so plagued with ethnic strife. I, I wonder if it was probably framed in people's minds as just another complexity on everyday ethnic strife. Like, oh, there's a, there's a new ethnic group in town, and they seem much more uppity than the last one. You know, I wonder how long it's going to take to kill them.
0: I mean, they call it the grave of empires, and the British, the Russians, I think twice, and then the Americans now are struggling and failing to conquer it. So they're used hope, to this.
3: I hope we have some Chinese listeners that are, are paying, <laughs> paying close attention. You, you guys really got to reevaluate your options if you're thinking of going there.
2: What are the Chinese uh, playing yeah. around in Afghanistan? Is They're this t- going to be the new,
3: new, new, great game? They're yeah, the this, is, this is the the new, new, great game. Actually, if you've ever seen that, that meme tier Belt and Road map, mm-hmm. they, it, they hilariously... It's, it's a complete meme. Belt yeah, and Road isn't really a thing. They hilariously have like almost a nearly kind of straight line going through Central Asia, and then abruptly go around the borders of Afghanistan. Smart. <laughs> <laughs> Completely avoid. Even they're, they're totally comfortable driving you through northern Pakistan for some reason, but Afghanistan is total avoidance. I don't know if you guys want to talk about, I guess, the Spetsnaz in the 90s. I mean, it basically became a Chechen killing machine. <laughs> Well, I mean, not I really even know that, so they... <laughs> See, After the Chachis did pretty uh, well
0: when they yeah, first they did invaded. do well.
3: They actually, yeah, they didn't... They actually didn't do bad. They basically yeah. kicked the shit out of the Russian military no, in, the, in the early conflict.
0: That's probably why they sent the Spetsnaz. nuts. I mean, the,
2: the trick is you just level the city. Yeah. And, uh, And you don't have to worry about house-to-house fighting.
3: <laughs>
0: yeah, or that.
3: Yeah, they really... They channeled... uh They channeled General MacArthur there. You know, just fucking nuke them (laughs) just burn it all down you know Who, who cares what's gonna happen afterwards yeah i mean
2: uh the the chechen campaign should be a show in and of itself because that's an extremely interesting and very um complex uh area um especially because it's not just chechnya it's also all the surrounding stuff like dagestan and the weird uh all the weird georgian conflicts where we were yeah talking, the, the uh, transnistria that guy the guy that we exfiltrated to uh to brooklyn
0: the ex of
2: georgia you Socrates. know like as Miss nice brownstone. brownstone uh, but i mean my uh my understanding was that the uh, the russian military at the time was kind of uh Decrepit enough that they, they elected, instead of doing some sort of a, a spooky, sneaky, um, you know, U.S. style Phoenix program type thing to pacify the region, they were just like, yeah, well, you know, Cold War's over and we got all this artillery. It's just kind of burning a hole in our pockets. So, uh, no more Grozny.
3: I mean, I guess we should maybe really ponder... What exactly were their choices? I mean, the, the, the Russians are, I think the, they're still having UN hearings about uh, whatever the Russians did over 20 years ago now, in literally over 20 years ago now in Dagestan. Yeah, UN uh, has hearings over everything. It's kind but, of their job. Well, but, but let's, let's look at this. I mean, what, what exactly are your options? If you're, if you're Russia, if you're post Soviet Russia, it hasn't even been 10 years since the fall. And you have breakaway republics, you know, literally fighting to go, and you're worried about a dozen other republics in more key regions than this one uh, potentially doing the same thing. What, you know, what are your options? There, there are, you have no options. You basically, you have no options left. Yeah. And any serious country. If faced with something like that, would try and put down the revolutions going on within it. There's just no way you wouldn't. You'd ha- you'd be forced to, especially in in a place where the military and the economy and the government was as weak as post Soviet Russia, where basically nothing functioned. It's actually shocking that they managed to win. Uh, they had everything going against them in that. Warren, I think that basically engaging in a bombing run campaign well, and then dispatching Spetsnaz was a, was a last-ditch yeah. effort.
0: They weren't winning until Putin showed up. I mean, Yeltsin was not able to really get a grip on the place. And then, well, miraculously, when Putin shows up, those apartments in Moscow blew up. And then he, <laughs> yeah. uh, he, yeah. he basically clamped down and used that as sort of the pretext for why he did that. And that, that's what led to their victory.
2: It also helped that he had the, uh, the world's uh, best Instagram account as a, uh, a substitute president of the Republic of Chechnya. Right. If, uh, I, fr- I really Ram- forget Ramzon what his Kat- name Kadirov. is, but um, yeah, um, it's, uh, it's tasty, tasty content. Okay. That's... Well, the Crimea operation yeah. was the last kind of big verifiable thing where enough. you had guys dropped out of airplanes wearing no insignia, just kind of showing up uh and suddenly uh you know right. you have effective control of crimea
0: right the question i have is is the donbass actually using russian special forces my understanding is that they're kind of they're non-affiliated and maybe that's that but not but it, it's an open question as to how the russians are supporting that that russian side of things in that in that region
2: uh... And, like, guys running around? Like, it would be stupid if they didn't have guys running around. The amount of... Uh, kind of Because it's kind of a... Uh, it's kind of a tainted chalice, right? Like, Russia doesn't want to be in a position as of right now where it's actually clearly fighting a hot conflict in Ukraine. It doesn't seem to actually want to control um, any ukrainian territory it's like well if our buffer zone isn't going to be um you know the uh, the western ukrainian border then we would like our buffer zone to at least be like partially in like somewhere away somewhere not on the russian border or you don't really have a buffer zone so it would frankly be stupid if they didn't have some sort of a uh interest there I mean, they do have an interest there if they didn't have somebody um, looking out for their interest there. but it doesn't seem like their um, desire is to uh, amplify tensions. They may have an interest in maintaining them at a certain level. Um, but that uh, that requires sort of a delicate um, a delicate balance. like it's it's really difficult to just like, cause a little bit of trouble.
1: To get support, different versus different. Bed versus is the floor, wall versus is the door. Sure, black, water black, money, black, money back in green, back in season. Spring falling on to one time for unnatural Wanna decide which side you are gonna, do know which evil side is upon us this time. Mind your business, stay in line, find your calling, enterprise, shut your way up. And falling without underneath them, no one taking them out. The fire was gotten out of control. We got no water, no buckets, and we're lucky if tomorrow comes. Why is it important anymore? Sure, I'd like to know that need to know information. But when I know it, what reactions will it cause when they finally show up, dressed up, amped up in a black car? Wanna decide which side to don't the it. evil side is upon us this time. Mind your business, stay in line.